Hello, and welcome to What is X? I'm your regular host, Justin E.H. Smith. As regular listeners will know, on each episode, we ask a question of the form, what is X? Where X, the variable, is filled in by some well-known, difficult idea or concept, one that's often of interest to philosophy. And today, we're going to be talking about a very central X in the history of moral philosophy, namely virtue. What is virtue? And I'm going to be talking about this with a guest who's thought about virtue a great deal. I'm here today with Professor Jennifer Frey of the University of South Carolina in Columbia. I think. Uh, Jennifer is a well-known specialist of uh, medieval and early modern philosophy, the history of ethics and philosophy of action, and she takes as her guiding lights figures such as the three A's, Aristotle, Aquinas, and Anscombe, and I think Augustine is also in there somewhere. And anyhow, I'm delighted to talk to Jennifer Frey today. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I meant to say, and I'll say this once again before we get to the end, uh, Jennifer Frey uh, is also a pioneering and prominent philosophy podcaster. You can find her podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, all over the internet, and in particular under its Twitter handle, which is at EudaimoniaPod. So uh, I hope the listeners will go to your podcast once they've finished this one. But today, you and I are going to figure out what virtue is. All right? Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so uh, let me state at the outset, kind of the limits of my knowledge of this topic. I love Aristotle. I read Aristotle all the time. I seldom think about Aristotle through the retroactive lens or retrospective lens of the Aristotelian tradition of figures like Aquinas, not to mention Anscombe. And when I think about virtue for Aristotle, I think about the Greek notion of arete, which might just as easily be translated as excellence. And its meaning as excellence is one that applies not just to human beings, right, but also to trees and birds and planets and moss, and so on. Everything has its own excellence. And to this extent, I've always seen Aristotle's notion of virtue as very far from our own, in that it seems almost, you could say, naturalistic, as continuous between human beings and everything else that's out there. And so I have trouble understanding how you can get much mileage for it or uh, out of it if you're trying to think in particular about human virtue. 
Well, I mean, obviously, I think you can get a lot of mileage out of it. But look, um, it is true that Aristotle's worldview, Aristotle's understanding of moral philosophy is incredibly alien to mm. us if we are really reading it with fresh eyes. And, mm-hmm. and of course, many people are not reading it with fresh eyes. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, growing up in the philosophy nursery, um, especially at, at Pittsburgh, um, where I got my PhD, you know, people talked about uh, all the time, people talked about Hegel and Kant and Aristotle as if they were basically doing the same thing. And mm-hmm. I find that uh, more than a little bit absurd. Sure, <laughs> Although yeah. I was I was kind of very much on the outs at Pittsburgh and thinking this um, because, I, I mean, for, for one thing, uh, Kant is, is very much working with the idea of morality mm-hmm. that I think is simply not there in Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and another huge and um, n- non-negligible difference is that for Kant, the natural world is devoid of purpose and value. Mm-hmm. And for Aristotle, the natural world is suffused with yeah. purpose right. and value and human purpose and value is just part of a much broader, um, natural world. I mean, um, and, and so there is no real separation in Aristotle between, you know, uh, rational nature, Mm -hmm. uh, and other things. Um, Mm -hmm. now human beings, Aristotle is, is quick to emphasize right in book one of the Nicomachean ethics, which Mm -hmm. is his major ethical treatise that what is distinctive about the human being is that it has rational capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, but for example, when he gives his famous function argument, where mm-hmm. he first defines virtue in relation to um, human excellence, human flourishing, um, you know, he uses examples like uh, the excellence of knives, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, the, right. you know, I mean, he's just thinking, I mean, he has this basic idea that the excellence of the thing mm-hmm. is what allows it to perform its characteristic activity. Well, mm-hmm. and so the excellence of a knife is that it's sharp, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the characteristic activity of a knife is to cut things right. <laughs> and a dull knife will not do that well. Right. right? And so it, it even applies the, the concept of arete even applies outside of the natural world. Right. Um, it's a very basic and flexible concept for Aristotle, um, which he puts, I think to rather brilliant use in, mm-hmm. in thinking about um, not so much moral philosophy. I mean, I, I really hesitate to, describe Aristotle as a moral philosopher, Mm -hmm. because again, I don't think he has the concept of morality. Mm -hmm. What interests Aristotle is living well, Mm -hmm. doing well, uh, and what he calls, so, you know, uh, oipraxia or eudaimonia, right? Mm -hmm. Doing well um, or living a flourishing or blessed life, Mm -hmm. right? And he thinks that in particular, when he's talking about eudaimonia, he thinks he's talking about something almost divine. There's something mm-hmm. almost godlike right. <laughs> about right. living a eudaimon life. Right. right. Um, and and this is this. There are all of these interesting moments all over the Nicomachean Ethics, where you know he's quick to say, you know, saying that someone is like living a eudaimon life, it's not even necessarily to praise them. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, you know, we praise the just man because we know that justice is good. 
Um, but he's like, you know, the, the eudaimon life, mm. um, that we give encomia for, like that is right. sort of, uh, something much higher. Right. And he also admits that there is this element of fortune to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he's very clear about that. And I think that is a huge break again with right. our modern conception of morality. Um, right, right. you know, whether or not you're moral or you have a good will for Kant cannot be a matter of luck. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, yeah. The, the Jonathan Haidt, the current author, uh, talks about winning the cortical lottery, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like yeah. you're born with a cortex that facilitates your happiness, right? right. And in some sense, uh, that's a return to this idea that um, that your ability to thrive or to live in accordance with eudaimonia is, to some extent, just um, just uh, uh, the luck of the draw, right? I mean, to an extent, right? I mean, so for for Aristotle, um, he thinks that virtues, which are the um, excellences of thought, action, and feeling Mm -hmm. that a human person needs to cultivate in Mm -hmm. order to even have a chance of Mm -hmm. living well, um, you know, he thinks that these have to be deliberately chosen. Mm -hmm. Um, So you acquire them over time, and that's a very intentional thing. Um, and he thinks that they are praiseworthy. So he thinks that they're necessary. It's just that he doesn't think that they are sufficient, right? Mm-hmm. So he thinks that you also have to be blessed, right, right. with external goods. So he says things like, um, which again, you know, if you're a Kantian, ought to horrify you. <laughs> he says things like, well, if you're just extremely ugly, um, <laughs> then, you know, you can't have it. So like, maybe if you're just kind of ugly, it's fine. But if you're <laughs> extremely ugly, you right, can't have right. a eudaimon life. Um, if you're not born into like the right kind of family, the right kind of society, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're just not, it's, it's not going to happen for you. And then mm-hmm. also, and this, I find incredibly interesting. Um, he thinks that, you know, tragedy is possible. Mm-hmm. And his constant example there is King Prime. Right. So he's like, look, you know, you could also be a good person and be well-born and have these advantages. And also it all goes to hell right. for reasons that are basically outside of your control. Right, 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 right. And there's no hint of the stoic admonition to not get hooked on externals in the first place, right? Right, um, no. Externals he, um, are part of what, constitutes happiness. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's kind of consonant with this idea that it's all part of this broader structure, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about like in the natural world, um, you know, the example that I always use for my students is you can think of an oak tree Mm -hmm. and it's amazing to consider that these 400 year old oaks on our campus that are so enormous and majestic and old, Uh, were once these tiny acorns that you're constantly being pelted with. Mm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you have in that acorn, like the potential Mm -hmm. to become a flourishing oak. But of course it doesn't do that on its own. It has to be in the right circumstances. It has to have the right 
kind of characteristic environment in order for it to really flourish. And I think Aristotle recognizes something similar in human life, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Um, That you can take all this human potential, but if you put it in the wrong kind of society or, or something like that, it's just not, Mm. you know, there, there are other factors in play. Right. Indeed. In Aristotle, there's a pretty uh, monolithic conception of the path by which one can come to be happy, Um, right? Uh, Just as with a knife, there's only one thing that the knife properly does. And if you try to use the knife as a doorstop or something like that, you're misusing the knife. Similarly, human beings have one particular path to flourishing as human beings, right? And it's written into what it is to be a human being. Do you think that's fair to say? With some maybe some minor, minor room to maneuver. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's not wrong, but it's potentially misleading. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not wrong because Aristotle thinks there is an architectonic end Mm -hmm. to human life and that we all want it. Um, But he also recognizes that we all kind of disagree about how to get it and what it really is. You know, Mm -hmm. so some people think it's just pleasure, like the common, the vulgar people Mm -hmm. just think that it's pleasure. Um, Some people think... Uh, you know, that it's the active life. Um, so he, so he's, which he associates with honor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he canvasses a bunch of options here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true to say that he thinks that there is something that is the highest human activity. Mm-hmm. And this is contemplation. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that it really in its highest form, it's contemplation of the highest object, which is God. Right. And the most godlike thing you can do is contemplate God. Because that's literally what Aristotle's God does. It's right. thought thinking itself. Right, 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 <laughs> so, right, right. Um, And so it's true that he thinks, you know, he has a very specific vision of like what the highest thing you could do is. But I, but I also think that he has an awareness, uh, you know, that it may I mean he's reflecting primarily on, on the works of his teacher, Plato. Mm-hmm. I think he recognizes that um, one, we can't always be contemplating, mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that some people aren't as well suited to contemplation as others. Right. And that's fine. So long as we construct the right sort of city in which there is a, a leisured class right. for whom contemplation is, you know, both possible and, and kind of the animating principle. And, um, you know, so I think he, I think he, he recognizes that there are kind of many different ways that human beings might flourish, but what will remain the same between all of them is that they will be lives that um, reflect, you know, the exercise of virtue. And they will Mm -hmm. also be lives that are lived within a polis Mm-hmm. A, a political structure that um, that has laws that are ordered to bringing about and maintaining the common good, which is to say, 
order to bringing about and maintaining virtue in its citizens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there is a, yeah. That does sound like an excellent summary of the picture we get from the Nicomachean ethics in particular. It sounds like it might be a little bit in tension with some of the other pieces of the puzzle of Aristotle's philosophical project, thinking in particular of uh, this passage in On the Parts of Animals, where Aristotle uh, says, like, he's basically trying to justify the work of studying sea cucumbers and so on. Mm. And he says, look, it would be better to study the celestial bodies because they're more divine because all they do is move in a perfect circle and, and think about God all the time. Uh, but the celestial bodies are farther away. Um, sea cucumbers are really close and, and easy to access. Um, and yes, they're lowly, but just like everything, they contain a certain amount of divinity. And that's where he quotes Heraclitus, here too dwell gods. And that seems to reinforce the idea that human excellence, the ultimate human excellence achieved in contemplating the divine, is not just analogous to the excellence of a sea cucumber uh, uh, egg becoming an adult sea cucumber. It's actually the same thing, but just, you know, in a different manner, given what's possible for the different kinds of being, right? So it's across the board, isn't it? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, and I think, sorry, I mean, no, no, I, I, one thing that I'm interested in and that I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, is you know, the role of contemplation, mm-hmm. um, in the cultivation of virtue mm-hmm. and just in the good life generally. And one of the reasons that I've been thinking about that so much is that. If you hang around at all with analytic philosophers who either think and write a lot about Aristotle or in particular think and write a lot about his ethics or just people who call themselves Mm -hmm. neo-Aristotelians, they're just, they just kind of throw up their hands when it comes to Aristotle and contemplation. And they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't get why he saw that that was so important. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously the active life and justice are the most important things. And mm-hmm. um, one, I think that if you can't see why this mattered so much to Aristotle, somehow fundamentally, you're just not getting it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, especially his relation to Plato. But two, I think that it uh, is very revealing of a contemporary prejudice yeah. against contemplation yeah. in favor of action. And, um, you know, I'm I'm coming down more and more on the side of contemplation, (laughs) not, not as opposed to action, but as necessary for acting well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and so I've been trying to think more about ways that Aristotle allows for everyday contemplation Mm -hmm. of the kind that you find, for example, uh, so wonderfully articulated in the writings of Iris Murdoch, Uh you know, where you might just look at a bird Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like that yeah. could be good for the soul. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate you bringing up that passage because mm. I think in a way it speaks to this sort of thing. Sure, sure, sure. No, it's it's clear that Aristotle was trying to transmit 
some of his wonder uh, standing knee deep in the tide pool. And, you mm-hmm. know, when elsewhere he says wonder uh, is a form of, how does he put it? Um, uh, uh, wonder is, a, is the seed of philosophy and yeah. wonder is what drives mythology. So myth is uh, in the service of philosophy. Wonder, right. I think, is clearly uh, something that's central to at least Aristotle's natural scientific writings. And it's really interesting, the idea that you suggest following Iris Murdoch, that that one that sort of wonder could be uh uh, uh, could count as what he means by contemplation. Right. And I think, you know, I think one of the most beautiful and moving parts of Aristotle's corpus is actually the first book of the metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's just this, you know, because what becomes clear in the first book of the metaphysics is that the highest good is the perfection of, you know, it's sort of the full potential of this very natural basic desire that we have, right? Mm -hmm. Aristotle opens the metaphysics by saying, all men by nature desire to know. And the evidence of this is the delight we take in our senses. Right, 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 right. Right, and right, yeah. um, and then 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 he launches into this discourse about wonder and this desire to know, this drive mm-hmm. that we have to know and to understand. And yeah, I mean, that's key to his ethics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think from a contemporary perspective, we have a very hard time understanding that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really actually <laughs> kind of the key. Right. Um, because of course, for Aristotle, virtue is an expression of rational knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes this distinction, right, between intellectual virtue and ethical virtue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he also has this distinction between Sophia and Phrenesis. Mm-hmm. So kind of theoretical reason, uh, theoretical wisdom and practical wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are these are good habits of mind, stable mm-hmm. disposition of good thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very different from moral virtue, mm-hmm. which is stable dispositions of appetite and feeling, mm-hmm. right? right. And, right? And he also is very clear that, at least on the practical side, right, you cannot be practically wise. You cannot make good decisions that hit the rational mean and the mm-hmm. circumstances which is what practical wisdom is supposed to do, um, unless you have well-ordered passions right. and appetites, especially bodily appetites, because right. passions and appetites cloud the judgment. Right, right, right. Which is also why I think he says only old people can truly be wise, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, so two reasons why he says that. One is he thinks that you can really only come to know the mean through experience. Like mm-hmm. this is not a priori knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, and it couldn't be. <clears throat> and then second, he thinks um, that young people uh, just haven't yet fully mastered themselves right. in the relevant sense. Right. Um, right. And right. so he recognizes that just reading some lectures about mm-hmm. virtue right. um, isn't going to make you virtuous. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, right. It's just not. Right, right, right. That seems obvious enough. Now, so you seem to be convinced that we read 
Aristotle's ethics today through a lens, through a distorting lens that was put up by Kant uh, and maybe other figures in the modern period that not only distorts what Aristotle's saying, but also projects back uh, into antiquity an idea of moral philosophy as meditation on duties towards others that simply wasn't there. In antiquity, Aristotle, someone like Aristotle understands the project of ethics uh, explicitly as um, the project of leading the best kind of life, living your best yeah. life. Right? Yeah, I think absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I mean, just to give a few examples, um, one of the most influential books um, in analytic philosophy on Aristotle's ethics um, doesn't even talk about friendship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Aristotle talks about friendship more than he talks about anything else in the ethics. Right. He has two entire books. Now right. that is definitely reading Aristotle through the lens of modernity where friendship has nothing to do with morality. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, um, and it, and it, and it really has almost everything to do with virtue for Aristotle. Right. So the fact that it literally in this book, which is like almost 400 pages, it comes up in one footnote. Mm-hmm. And that is astonishing, but it's mm-hmm. also very telling. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's also, I mean, you, you can find all these Aristotle scholars, you know, trying to say that Aristotle is really a human about practical reason, mm-hmm. um, not understanding that for Aristotle or somehow not seeing that for Aristotle, there is not this dualism mm-hmm. <laughs> of mm-hmm. practical reason. So there's not this dualism between prudential reasoning and moral reasoning. Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. no difference for Aristotle. Right. There is no, so, I mean, one way to think about Aristotle is that for Aristotle, when you think about good practical thinking, and when you think about virtue, you're just as likely to be thinking about wit and mm-hmm. friendliness right. as you are about justice, right? right? Or temperance. Right, right, like, right. Um, you know, whether or not like you're witty at a dinner party <laughs> matters right. for Aristotle. Right. right. And, um, you know, it's and, and I think from a contemporary from from the perspective of thinking about morality mm-hmm. um, that that just seems nonsensical. Right. Um, and and I and I just and I think actually it's very hard to see Aristotle kind of like for who he is it's very natural to yeah. read these ancient texts through our yeah. own categories our own you know the categories that we've been given um and that's why when i teach aristotle i don't do any secondary literature right i'm just right. like we're reading this book <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and we're gonna try to see what this book is saying right and right, it's, right. it's actually much easier to teach someone pretty much ignorant <laughs> mm-hmm. sure, yeah, <laughs> of moral yeah. philosophy yeah, um, right. because they're not, they're not already thinking in a certain way. Right. Right. Well, let's try to zoom ahead, even if we're, <laughs> so to speak, living in a, uh, the fallen age <laughs> of, of, <laughs> yeah. of philosophical ethics. Um and try to understand the current lay of the land and then maybe finally also 
try to understand what virtue actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, there's a current, I mean, not everyone listening here has studied philosophy. There's a current of philosophical ethics in academic philosophy called virtue theory. And this seems to draw on certain elements of Aristotle and yet to be more of a kind of contender for, you know, the prevailing theory um, alongside others like utilitarianism and uh, Kantian deontology and so on. What is the project of virtue theory and what is the, what are its prospects? Okay. That's a great, that's a great question. So, um, I think that the best example of someone who thinks of virtue ethics as modern moral theory is Mm -hmm. Rosalind Hursthaus. Right. So she had a book in 1999 called Virtue Ethics published by Oxford in which she sort of announces like, hey, virtue ethics is all grown up now and we can play with the big boys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are just as capable of doing moral philosophy as all these consequentialists and deontologists. And Mm -hmm. the idea is to show that these thoughts from Aristotle and this tradition can be kind of shoehorned Mm -hmm. um, into this mold. And um, there's a a really wonderful series of papers actually sort of critiquing this idea that Mm -hmm that this is what we should be doing, you know, that we should, we, that we should want to stand up and say, you know, we're, we're part of the, um, we're part of the club um, that rather what we should be saying is we're not only not part of the club, but we would like to burn the clubhouse down. Right, exactly. <laughs> like we think uh, we, we, this is not a group that we want to join. So you might make a distinction, which I think originally David Solomon made mm-hmm. called, um, routine virtue ethics and radical virtue ethics. Mm-hmm. And the radical virtue ethicists um, are people like Alistair McIntyre right. and Elizabeth Anscombe, right. right? Who are really asking to make a complete break with mm-hmm. modern moral philosophy, mm-hmm. um, with contemporary modes of thinking about moral theory and asking to do something else. Mm-hmm. They're basically saying it's bankrupt or it's senseless. Um, it's an embarrassment. Please stop. Mm-hmm. Um And then there's the more routine project where you say, oh, no, no, um, we can do this too. And Mm -hmm. I'm very much on the radical. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very much in the radical camp. Um, And although, you know, I have many routine friends and I I love them very much, (laughs) but I just think that they have the wrong approach. Um, In part because I don't think that... um, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly influenced by Anscombe's mm-hmm. famous paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, a paper that I think is, uh, like a lot of Anscombe, wildly influential, but very little understood, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think she really was, I think she she meant what she said when mm-hmm. she said we should cease and desist from doing moral philosophy, mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. kind of bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And we should go back to Aristotle. And, um, and what she says is we should figure out kind of like the moral psychology of this. Mm-hmm. There's something more fundamental that we need to figure out before we could even possibly mm-hmm. do ethics in a way that was respectable and serious. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I am very much in agreement with that. So anyway, if we think about the difference between the radical and the routine people, Mm -hmm. if you look in the routine camp, there's actually like a proliferation of possible Mm -hmm. views. Mm -hmm. There are humans Mm -hmm. and there are even, um, despite the fact that the kind of virtue ethics revolution was brought about by this paper that was arguing against consequentialism, there are virtue consequentialists. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who call themselves neo-Aristotelian, um, mm-hmm. but neo-Aristotelianism takes many forms. So right. for example, there's a huge difference between, sometimes I call this difference, uh, the difference between first nature and second nature naturalism. Mm-hmm. Somebody like Philippa Foote is very much right. a first right. nature naturalist. So she's like, Hey, actually teleology is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and virtue right. should be understood in this broader theological framework. Right. Um, and so she talks a lot about virtue being a natural good. And then you have someone like a John McDowell, mm-hmm. um, and John McDowell is thinking, no, it's all second nature all the mm-hmm. way down. It's all building. And there's nothing outside of that that could possibly right. matter. Um, and so that, that's actually like a deep disagreement within the, the broadly Aristotelian umbrella. And it mm-hmm. reflects two very different readings of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I mean, McDowell's Aristotle is, is not my Aristotle. Right. 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 Say a bit more about this, uh, radicalism and what it would mean, uh, if you, if you guys won. (laughs) We are not winning. (laughs) What would, what would moral philosophy look like at that point? Yeah. I mean, um, I think that Radical virtue ethics, um, and 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 here you'll find a kind of ragtag group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what sort of unites them? I think what unites them is this commitment to um, thinking that modern moral theory has a set of assumptions, all Mm -hmm. of which are bad, right? So for example, that there's a fundamental dualism within Mm -hmm. practical reason Mm -hmm. um, so that we, um, we can reason according to like what's prudential or what's instrumentally good. And Mm -hmm. then we can reason morally. And like Mm -hmm. morality is this super special, shiny part of the practical life, right. but there's much more to the practical life than morality. And you were right. interested in this morality thing. Right. Um, also, um, what you find in modern moral philosophy is a prioritizing of an idea of right action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have the right as the central thing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, maybe goodness is somewhere else in there. Mm-hmm. And I think um, for the radical virtue <laughs> ethicists, we think that the good is is prior, the, the right. prior concept, and that it's also a, a very big flexible concept, mm-hmm. right? And so I think one thing that I haven't mentioned yet about the Aristotelian tradition, but that I think is one of the most um, salutary aspects of it is the fact that you have a kind of analogical form of reasoning Mm -hmm. where you see that, you know, the good is said in many ways, but there's Mm -hmm. something, um, there's, there's some kind of focal meaning to the good that we can Mm -hmm. see in all these various instances. Um, and I think that's a, that's a a much better focus, but I also think that, um, the radical, (laughs) uh, the radical camp wants to obliterate the distinction 
between mm-hmm. moral philosophy and political philosophy. Right. Um, as reflective of not fully articulated, you know, political beliefs, right? I mean, like, right. like, like trying to be an Aristotelian within the context of liberalism yeah. um, is a little bit tricky, actually. Right. Um, and so, this, so actually, okay, yeah. so like reorienting, so, so recovering, for example, the common good, mm-hmm. which if, if you read neo-Aristotelianism, mm-hmm. unless you're reading Catholics, right. you'll never find it. Right. Um, and yet it's like central to Aristotle. Right. And right, right. um, you know, he's not after um the good of the individual as something distinct mm-hmm. from the common good. Mm-hmm, he thinks mm-hmm. that really we only understand the good of the individual in relation to the right. common good. Right. And right. this becomes especially clear in the the kind of more ignored aspects of the Nicomachean ethics, um, which is book five and the two books on friendship. Um, There is a very noticeable tendency Mm -hmm. for neo-Aristotelians to kind of just skip those. Right, right, right. (laughs) As if they don't, you know, they're not really relevant. Right, right. You know, I'm having a huge light bulb going off over my head. I don't know if you can see it as I'm finally <laughs> understanding some of the some of the background information that motivates some of the ideas I've seen circulating in Catholic intellectual circles about yeah. the unity between the the social good and the individual good, right? Yeah. And that that's the basis of the critique of liberal democracy, right? Which I find I'm somewhat apprehensive about, even if I'm ready to acknowledge that uh, there's a danger that liberalism is in fact just an incoherent and unsuccessfully neutral framework in which we're each allowed to cultivate our own conception of the good, even if it's incoherent, and even if it's not what it thinks it is, I'm still inclined to think it's a pretty good thing to keep around because (laughs) we'll continue to have uh, opposing views of what the social good is. And therefore, given those opposing views, we should all just maybe think about our own individual good. (laughs) And I I see how imperfect it is. And for now, I'm just kind of happy to understand how these pieces fit together and what the link to Aristotle is. Am I getting it right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I just would add that, you know, post-liberalism is also said in many ways and that Mm -hmm. there are a wide variety of um, positions to take within that conceptual space. Some of them Mm -hmm. are pretty extreme Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. from where I'm standing unpalatable. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, other, other ones I think are, are, are are much more sensible. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, I, I just think it's great that people are actually, you know, just, just having these conversations Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, um, pressing liberals to to rethink some, some of their core commitments about mm-hmm. you know the nature of liberty, mm-hmm. the nature of uh, the good, 
um, I mean, this is like really basic fundamental stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I share your worry. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. It's sort of like how I felt as an undergrad about Marx. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, it's obvious that capitalism is terrible, but I might be more scared of what replaces it. Right. right, (laughs) right, right. Looking around, you know, historically, what kind of came about, it doesn't really look better. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that just, I don't know. That resonates with me. That's fine. But Mm -hmm. I think there are many ways to think about um, how our current understanding of political liberalism Mm -hmm. could um, reimagine itself to take on a more robust conception of the common good. Uh Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I I just think there's a, a, a lot of work there to do. Right, 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 right. Certainly, or at least to face up to the strange kind of feeling of incompleteness that mm-hmm. the liberal structure uh, itself provides, right? Rather than right. insisting that it's a full package. Right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's also bound up with like a whole bunch of other kind of reassessing, for example, mm-hmm. the reassessment of the nation state mm-hmm. that is kind of going on right now. Um, and so, I mean, just one form of post-liberalism is sort of contemporary McIntyre's kind of distributivist, just kind mm-hmm. of this radical localism, mm-hmm. um, which is anti-capitalist, mm-hmm. but not communist um, mm-hmm. or socialist, um, but but something else. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just think there are lots of options there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Now, virtue sounds, I'm just trying to shift gears a little bit so that we Mm -hmm. can maybe start to uh, narrow down a stab at a definition of the term. Uh, It's something that has taken on highly moralistic connotation in Nietzsche's sense, right? As Mm -hmm. the opposite of, of, I would say, something like naughtiness, right? Um, (laughs) And um, it's curious, it's paradoxical that virtue and vice uh, became uh, exactly what Aristotle would have insisted they're not, right? Like just terms for school marms or for, you know, uh, uh, the kind of disciplinarian who would wrap your knuckles to level at you when you've been doing what you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So the fact that that happened makes me think that virtue has a strange and weaving history to it right it does um, yeah i mean it does and i think you know one of the things about nietzsche is that he's you know he's critiquing this kind of victorian nonsense you know mm -hmm. that he sees around him and Mm -hmm. and i and i think sometimes we forget that um Mm -hmm. and you know the victorian ideals um are not ideals that I would like to defend in any yeah. way. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't have nostalgia for, uh, for the Victorian age. Mm. Um, so, you know, but I do agree that virtue talk is both alien and alienating, mm-hmm. but I'm not really sure 
I, I don't really know what to do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's this problem that you have when you're trying to recover something. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in part, actually my interest in mm-hmm. literature. One of my interests in literature yeah. is, um, you know, the one problem that we have uh, generally, but philosophers have particularly is um, the concepts that we often want to work with, like happiness and mm-hmm. virtue have become like shopworn mm-hmm. and almost me- like degraded and shopworn and almost meaningless. Mm-hmm. And so how do you, how do you deal with that? Right. Um, and I struggled with that for a long time. And then I realized, well, actually, you know, the novelist and the poet are really the ones that can help us <laughs> recover mm-hmm. the true value of these concepts mm-hmm. um, by kind of um, maybe giving us new vocabularies, but also just showing us, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just think that literature can show you things that theory never possibly could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of like a large part of my own engagement with art mm-hmm. is trying to recover lost things or, or maybe trying to clear away the dust. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so that we can see these things again, um, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. way that the way that we ought to see them, but it's a huge problem. I mean, if I knew how to solve that, I don't know. Your own, your own podcast. <laughs> I would have solved it. Your own podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, deals yeah. primarily with literature, if not exclusively. Yeah. And do you do you use novels when you're teaching moral philosophy as well? Um, well, um, not, regularly. not regularly. So I have a philosophy and literature class mm-hmm. that I take, or sorry, that I teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, I am sometimes met with quite robust resistance mm. from my philosophy majors when I mm. tell them, like, we're going to read Flaubert. Mm-hmm, and they're mm-hmm. like, I'm a philosopher. I don't know how to read novels. And I'm yeah. like, but isn't that <laughs> part of the problem? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. so um, I, it's hard to, you know, it's like hard to force students to do something mm. that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And so if I, um, if I do do it mm. in an unannounced way, right. <laughs> so right. for example, I did this, um, upper level seminar on evil and suffering mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I snuck in some literature. I also snuck in some film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we watched mm-hmm. the Coen brothers, a serious man, and we mm-hmm. read Milton's paradise lost, oh, wonderful. but then we yeah. also did all this philosophy, Oh, I also made them read the book of Job. Right. Because um, a serious man is inspired by the book of Job. Oh, it's totally. Yeah, uh, right, right, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense without the book of Job. <laughs> right. Right. Um, it's also like one of my favorite Coen Brothers. Oh, it's wonderful. Poems. Yeah. 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 It's so great. Um, <laughs> it's a hidden gem. But um, yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of like kind of throw it in there alongside mm-hmm. some philosophy. That way, um, you know, they're not forced to write on Milton. Mm-hmm, if if mm-hmm. if it really is just too much mm-hmm. for them or they hate it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but if what but when I do literature and philosophy, it's like mm-hmm. a literature class and then we yeah. read philosophy alongside it. It's very much like the podcast. Yeah. It's I this is kind of getting off on a different topic, but it's I, I think we it deserves at least a few minutes from us because I share your view that 
literature has something really important to offer, perhaps more important than theory when we're thinking about uh, the cultivation of the, of, the, of the moral character and other, yeah. other deep problems. I've often uh, balked, however, when literature is presented to philosophers or within the context of the study of philosophy as like a great source for mining philosophical problems, right? Yes, and in some I, you cases, should. Yeah. yeah, in some cases, it's clear like, yeah, the Grand Inquisitor is uh, inter alia a philosophical text, but often when you're reading literature and you're finding that it's deepening uh, your sense of the moral in an unexpected way, it's not because it's resolving a quandary you had so much as making you see the world in a profoundly destabilized way or something like that. Yeah, so no. It's, it's uh, yeah, like, I yeah, totally that makes agree me, with this. And that makes me think like it's, it's not philosophy, but it's better than philosophy. So perhaps I shouldn't put it like that. No, I think it's, I mean, um, one of the things that just kind of like happened to me as I, as I got older is that the limits of philosophy became increasingly clear to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that would have been the case if I, if I weren't doing moral philosophy in mm-hmm. particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, you know, philosophy is, is absolutely fantastic and I've, and it makes me incredibly happy and I've devoted my life to it and I wouldn't change, I would never go back and make another choice. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that philosophy is limited mm-hmm. um, in part because theory is limited. Right. And, um, you know, if you actually go back and look at the ancients, if you look at Aristotle, he is drawing on literary sources mm-hmm. as, you know, yeah. um, as it, as it figures and, you know, as sources of insight. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a mistake to reduce the role of literature Mm-hmm. Um, as like, I don't know, giving us a theme or giving us a moral, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you yeah. <laughs> like, if like, 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 if you just want to know, um, you know, that fantasy is bad, mm-hmm. um, then you could just learn that fantasy is bad. Like you don't need to read, right. Right. Um, Madame Bovary. Right. 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 <laughs> right. And it would be ridiculous to say the reason you should read Madame Bovary is because it will show right. you that fantasy is bad. Right. Like right. the reason you should read Madame Bovary is because honestly, <laughs> it it should have this kind of enduring impact on you. Right. right? right, right. It's a thing to go back and keep contemplating mm-hmm. in the particular. Right. And I think that philosophers have this tendency, and it's not just philosophers, but philosophers have this tendency to approach literature and just just get to the theme. Right, like, what's right. the point? What's the right. moral? What's the and point? that is, of course, precisely to miss the point. Right. And whenever right. I see philosophers do this kind of crowdsourcing thing mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, can somebody give me an example from literature where <laughs> right, right. somebody and I'm just like, Oh, stop. <laughs> like, yeah. like, no, don't do that. Right. It's right, not, right. 
Um, or there's also, um, there's, a. I just wrote like this manifesto about this. Um, <laughs> I'm not joking. I, um, there's this thought, which is actually very common, mm. um, that the way to think about fiction is that it's a kind of thought experiment. So the best way that philosophers could think about fiction is to mm-hmm. treat them like thought experiments, mm-hmm. um, maybe thought experiments in the practical life. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I don't like this view. I think that it is reductive mm-hmm. and that it totally misses that it's art <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and art isn't a thought experiment, whatever right. art is, it's not that. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, Anyway, this is something I could go off about, so I'll just stop. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, I think it's important because it seems like this is of a pair with the conceit in contemporary philosophy that you can specify what virtue is as, say, a set of rules, right? Similarly, um, it's a misunderstanding of literature to say that you can understand it by you know, uh, making a bullet pointed, uh, list of what its lessons are, <laughs> like, you know, don't right. have affairs or something like that. If it's, if it's, right. not, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's, it's another example of the ways in which contemporary philosophy has, has, has engaged in this process of self-narrowing or etiolation to the point where it really can't engage with the kind of questions it 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 would like to answer, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, say? I think. Yeah, and I think one of the problems with modern moral theory is that it has a very hard time with the complexity of human life and mm-hmm. the complexity of human psychology, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I think you could sort of see that without literature, but it's impossible not to see it with literature. Right. right. And um, and I think that I really admire um, philosophers like Bernard Williams, mm-hmm. who, despite the fact that I disagree with so many of his conclusions, and I mm-hmm. and I definitely disagree with his starting points and so mm-hmm. many examples, but um, in some sense, he really gets it. Right. Um, you know, he gets the complexity there mm-hmm. and he sees so clearly the problems with modern moral theory. Yeah. And so I think in a sense, um, he deserves to be in the radical camp too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. although he can't, uh, for a variety of reasons that I think are all terrible, um, he cannot accept uh eudaimonism. Right. Um in part, I think, because maybe he, well, anyway, it doesn't get, that's a different podcast. Um, well, no, you know, so far I've been really impressed with the way we've managed to indict contemporary moral theory <laughs> without, without naming names, right? Um, yes, I don't want to name names. And it's, 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 it's wonderful to do that, to not uh, kind of um, slip into denunciations <laughs> of people. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they, they, we can continue that on another episode of another podcast. Um, but maybe we should start to try to wrap up here. I mean, I'm still thinking about virtue. And, you know, one of the things that often happens on this podcast is that, um, you know, we end up each episode remarking some variation of the old line from Aristotle 
X is said in many ways, right? And virtue is definitely said in many ways, like love is said in many ways. But virtue's many ways, I guess the whole question about these many ways virtue is said is whether they would necessarily be like different dictionary entries, you know, how you have the one, the two, the three in the dictionary to signal different meanings of a word, or rather whether um, it's being said in many ways is the same thing being applied appropriately to different kinds of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's more analogical, which means mm-hmm. that there is a unity there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's a it's a unity that allows for differences. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a unity, but not a sameness. And I think, like, if we're just thinking about uh, virtue or arte, we really are thinking of an excellent quality that allows a thing to perform its characteristic activity well. I think that's a good definition. Mm-hmm. Now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we talk about virtue in the practical life, mm-hmm. we are talking about a deliberately chosen state, yeah. right? That reflects um, a mean defined by reason in relation to us right. as the practically wise person would define it. That is right. Aristotle's definition in book two. Right. Um, and I, I, I would defend that definition. Mm-hmm. Um even even the doctrine of the mean, which people poo-poo, but I think um, I feel like I've just been on this earth long enough to see that it is simply a fact that the mm-hmm. human mind swings to extremes. Mm-hmm. And it actually seems really hard for right. us to find the kind of via media between right. excess and deficiency. Right. So I sort of just read that. I mean, he, he he kind of puts it in these mathematical terms mm-hmm. for whatever reason, but I just sort of see it as this incredible insight into human psychology, yeah, um, which seems to have remained relatively stable over time, right? Um, yeah, and across yeah. cultures. Yeah, I guess I, I we didn't even talk about the golden mean and parallel wings of vices. I mean, I've always had a problem with that in particular, in that. I've confessed many times in public to having trouble with moderation, to being an extreme person, and, you know, for example, to having excessive appetites and to have learned over my many years that the best way to deal with some of these excessive appetites is not to learn to moderate them, but to stop them altogether, right? And, um, <laughs> And so I don't think I'm particularly unique as a human being in being someone who says that, you know, to all those people who say, just come on, just have one drink. I say, no, I want zero drinks, even though I recognize that one drink is the moderate amount. So the doctrine of the golden mean can lead in, I think, in culture, broadly speaking, can lead to this kind of cult of the moderate that's actually harder to belong to and that can cause some people more pain and difficulty than just keeping on being extreme in their own idiosyncratic way. Yeah. Right? Okay, um, good. Yeah. 
Um, well, you should reject a cult of the moderate. That sounds dreary and boring. And I don't think that that's how you should understand the mean. Okay. So remember that the mean is in relation to us. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the uh, passages, mostly in book two and book three, where he is kind of like going over the mean and somewhat boring detail, um, it's clear that he thinks that the mean is determined in relation to the individual. So one Mm -hmm. thing that Aristotle recognizes is that, you know, the right amount of drink for one person isn't the right amount of drink for another person. Right. And in cases where, I mean, some people have really addictive personalities Mm -hmm. and for those people, um, you know, a kind of abstinence might make sense. I mean, Aristotle thinks that abstinence, um, isn't recommended in a general way because right. he thinks you should, I mean, Aristotle thinks that your appetites are good and you should enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, does not have any horror at bodily pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just thinks that bodily pleasures need to be regulated. Otherwise, right. um, I mean, obviously it would just be a disaster. Right. And um, he thinks that with respect to temperance in particular, which regulate our appetites for food, drink, and sex, that um, the mean of, of health mm-hmm. is, is part of what does that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is healthy for, I think he gives the example of a wrestler, Milo. Right, right, Milo. <laughs> what what yeah. is a healthy amount for him to eat is not the same as right, for me. Right. And it also depends on your, like, what do you do? What is your role Right. in society, what right. are your duties and your obligations? And um, so I think all of this is in a sense relative. Yeah. You know, the thing about the mean is that it's incredibly flexible. Right. right. Um, but he's just thinking that for every person in every situation, there is um a midpoint right. between excess and deficiency. And what goes into the, and he thinks that it's uh, a rational determination what the midpoint is, but it, you kind of um, have to bring your whole life to practical judgment, you know, it's not. um, And so, and, and the thing is, because these are all habits, right. They're not super reflective. Like if you're at a party, you don't have to sit down and think like in this really complicated way. Like if you're practically wise, you just know what works for you. You know how many drinks is too much. You know when you're going to cross the line and become kind of a bore or in the sense of boorish. Boorish, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Or, you know, like, and so he doesn't think you have to do this. Wait, I'm trying to remember. Boorish is one of the vices where, where. Uh, cle- clever wittedness is the yes. is the virtue, but I forget the op- opposite vice. <laughs> um, um, so it's like, uh, yeah. So wit is a mean between um being boorish, yeah, and which is sort of like um just being over the top and yeah. like to you know like like yeah. you go to the party and you're just the guy telling all the dirty jokes. Yeah, like you're right, a bore. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then the, uh, but then the other extreme is you're just like totally dour and not right, funny. Yeah, I yeah, forget yeah, the yeah. Greek word. Yeah. Right. right, um, right. But you know, you're sort of like sitting there with pursed lips and nobody, yeah. I mean, you're just no fun at all. <laughs> Man, it's tough. 
So high, high, <laughs> high demands Aristotle puts it's on really Aristotle. high standards. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about mm-hmm. is um, the way sort of like how medievals sort yeah, of pick yeah. up Aristotle. So it's interesting to contrast Aristotle's definition of virtue with St. Augustine's definition yeah. and the mm-hmm. De Libero Arbitrio, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, somebody like Aquinas, his real genius is that he is trying to synthesize these and make mm-hmm. them compatible right. because on right. their face, they don't seem compatible. So Augustine defines virtue as a good quality of the mind mm-hmm. by which we live righteously, mm-hmm. of which no one can make bad use, which God works in us mm-hmm. without us. Without us. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. So famously, St. Augustine rejects. Mm-hmm pagan virtue, natural yeah. virtue. Yeah. And he also seems, I've just put in seems because I'm not an Augustine scholar and I'm sure there's an Augustine scholar somewhere that will find some passage where he doesn't say this, but he seems to reject the idea that Aristotle and Aquinas embrace, which is that there can be good habits um, of our not essentially rational capacities. Right. 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 So those would be our passions Right. And our lower appetites. Right. These are capacities that can listen and participate in reason, but also can just not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and so temperance and fortitude right. are virtues that regulate lower appetites, right. the appetite for fear and like the appetite for sex. Mm-hmm. Um, Augustine seems to want to put all the virtues in the will or the intellect. Mm-hmm. 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 And so these are big differences, right? God gives us virtue and only in our rational capacities. And I suppose he wouldn't recognize that knives, for example, have the the virtue of cutting. Um, Um, You know what? I don't, I don't, I don't know if he, mm -hmm. not, not in the daily brew of virtue. I don't think he does, but, um, but I, but what's interesting to me is that Aquinas comes along and he's got to reconcile these two, mm, <laughs> right? Because right. they're both, in some sense, huge authorities for him. Right, right. You know, Augustine, the less problematic authority. If he had just gone with Augustine, everyone would have clapped, clapped. But he also right. really loved Aristotle, which got him into a lot of trouble. Right. But he basically makes a distinction between natural virtue and theological virtue, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues. And so he mm-hmm. says, faith, hope, and love right. are. Um, right? God works in us without us. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. infused, mm-hmm. but the cardinal virtues, mm-hmm. um, we can get those, uh, not on our own, but, you know, in the natural Aristotelian way through good teaching and habituation and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so, so Aquinas in a sense is, is doing something very new. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually think, I mean, I should just be honest. I think that Aquinas is an improvement mm-hmm. on Aristotle in, mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in scholastic mm-hmm. Aristotelianism um, mm-hmm. because Aquinas is much more sensitive to human um the human need for self-destruction mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. self-deception. Right. And I mean, I just, I just think Aquinas for a variety of reasons is much more in touch with human fallenness. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and, and so I think his theory is, um, 
responding to that in a variety of ways. And also his moral psychology is um, much more robust and I think faithful to actual the actual messiness of, of human life mm-hmm, than Aristotle's mm-hmm. is. I mean, it, he sort of takes Aristotelianism and he does things with it that are really surprising and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. Um, yeah, just more, more real, I think. Right, right. I, I like the way you described the challenge he's faced with of reconciling such wildly incompatible <laughs> um, systems. I haven't thought about that so much with respect to the, the moral philosophy, but more with respect to metaphysics and cosmology and so on, right? How do you reconcile uh, 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 the Aristotelian conception of the unmoved and also extremely indifferent mover uh, with a loving creator, right? right. And, yeah. and that's just an example of something that has just absolutely astounded me that it would have made sense in the 13th century to attempt mm-hmm. such a fusion. Um, mm-hmm. But here we are. <laughs> Aquinas is a genius. (laughs) Um, So listen, I feel like uh, all I can say is I feel like agreement and disagreement and aporia really aren't um, uh, to the point here today in this particular episode, even though that's what we're always aiming for. Uh, I just feel like I kind of learned a lot from you and a few light bulbs went off over my head and I understand things better now. Um, I'm happy, I think, with you uh, to think about um, virtue in uh, the sense that we've described it across humans and knives and sea cucumbers uh, in an analogical way, um, as you say Aristotle does. And if we think of it like that, then I think also with you that the Aristotelian definition of virtue is a pretty good one, right? So I guess we're in agreement. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, what would be great is if people were just interested, you know, in reading Aristotle and reading the De Libera Arbitrio, which is a small, small little text. Yeah. Uh, Reading Aquinas, which is, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's not small, (laughs) 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 but well, well worth it. I mean, I would just be happy if people were talking about it again in an informed way, because I think a lot of contemporary discourse about virtue really doesn't reflect the tradition that that concept came out of. Right, right, right. But we're still dealing with the kind of the husks of that tradition, uh, the right. the kind of dead husks that were left when we abandoned the living tradition. People are still kind of exchanging these uh, in in the form of vocabulary and concepts concepts we've inherited, but that have lost their the, their earlier life. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go back to the seeds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's uh, important work that you are doing. Um, and I myself um, am not only shamefully ignorant of uh, Thomas Aquinas, which is 
you know, really a, a lacuna for me because the period that interests me most, the early modern period, and in particular Leibniz, everything revolves around the question of how much should we retain from the uh, scholastic tradition and how much should we reject. So for a conciliatory thinker like Leibniz, Mm -hmm. unlike a radical like Descartes, it's all about kind of weighing how much you can still get out of these people today, that is to say, circa Mm -hmm. 1670, in a way that, you know, often uh, is remarkably generous in its interpretation of them. um, But I, I'm ashamed to say I more or less take my early modern figures word for it um, <laughs> on, on the medievals. And, you know, I, I hope to remedy that. So I'm, I'm thrilled to, 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 to learn a bit more about it from you. All right. Well, listen, um, I, again, I think technically we're in agreement, even though that seems a bit, a bit beside the point, um, um, given the, the free-flowing nature of our conversation. And either way, I had a great time. Once again, I've been talking to the philosopher Jennifer Frey, a philosopher and podcaster who has her own podcast called Sacred and Profane Love. Look it up on the internet. Thank you very much for talking to me, Jennifer. Oh, thank you. It was was really fun. 